and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. My name is David Ward and coming up this month, Shakespeare by the Sea, ticketing troubles at Covent Garden and calls to free Willy at the Metropolitan Opera. We also have an exclusive interview with the one and only Gerald Finlay. I'm joined in the Chapel FM studio by Ben Crick. A good morning to you, Ben. Morning. How are we doing? Very good. Thank you. Yourself? Excellent. All good. All good. Cheers. And on the line from London, it's Emma Black. Hello, Emma. Hi, David. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, you yourself, family life, treating you well? Yes, treating me very well. I could do with a tiny bit more sleep, but aside from that, can't complain. Good. And I, I saw uh, either a tweet or an Instagram from you recently with all of your various scores for 2020. You seem to have uh, be building up a pretty busy year for yourself. Yes, I'm very excited. Um, so first up is um, Scottish Opera, and I'm assisting on their new production of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, which I'm very excited about. Fantastic. Well, we will uh, we will make sure to uh, head up to Scotland to see to see that in the new year. Um, talking about new seasons, uh, first up on this month's agenda is Wexford's 2020 season announcement. Uh, this is the first season with new artistic director Rosetta Cucci at the helm, and it's their first season um, that has got a theme. It is Shakespeare themed. Um, so they're going to have three new productions: Ein Wintermärchen by Carl Goldmark, which is uh, the Winter's Tale; Le Song de Nuit d'Ette by Ambrose Thomas, which is a midsummer night's dream um, but not an adaptation of the Shakespeare play um, it's a rather bonkers opera that includes Shakespeare as a character and Falstaff and Elizabeth I um, <laughs> a, a very weird and wonderful um, uh, truly kind of lives up to that piece uh, and then also Edmea by Alfredo Catalani as well which isn't based on a Shakespeare um, play but has been given the kind of title as, as kind of a Shakespeare-esque plot which seems very loosely related. I think Shakespeare the covered quite a few plots. Didn't it? He, he did, Actually, yeah. anything could be a Shakespeare-esque plot. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so they found a way to kind of sneak that under Shoehorn there as well. that in, I think, um, is the word you're looking for. Yeah, so yeah, the, the three up is very interesting. But actually, what I think is really um, good about Wexford in general, and particularly next year, is we talked about this in our festival special pod this year, but they've made a real effort to turn it into a proper kind of festival with lots mm. of different things going mm -hmm. on so yes there's the new productions but there are three uh, what they're calling pocket operas um two of which are kind of greatest hit shows and, and one is a reduced version of verdi's falstaff they're introducing the wexford factory which is training 20 irish or irish based singers they've got four cabaret evenings they're gonna have pop-up shows all around the town um, and i think especially for somewhere like wexford which is um maybe somewhere you'd only visit for the opera festival to have all of this different stuff on to encourage you to visit um seems like a really great idea I love it. I think I think it's creative. I think it's original, and and it it genuinely opens like the questions to what opera can be and perhaps what opera should be. It's not I know. Let's do Bohem. Let's do Tosca. Let's do it's original. Even within the concept of doing a Shakespeare thing, it's not the main big Shakespeare operas. It's it's outside of that, and it seems accessible. Ticket prices are much more reasonable at Wexford than a lot of other places. I think, yeah, looks like a great job, a good first good first year for a new boss. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Emma, again, thinking about kind of festivals, do you think they work best when actually festivals are somewhere a bit um, off the beaten track? Because you can kind of develop that festival community uh, around it. What, what do you kind of think about, about that? Yes, no, I think there is something to be said for kind of taking over a, an area um, for an arts festival, and, and yeah, and you can um, basically kind of pick and choose. Well, obviously, on a massive scale, you're looking at Edinburgh in August, where just the whole town um, just becomes all about both the International Festival and the Fringe Festival and the Book Festival and the Film Festival. And it is, I've been a few times, it's incredible. Um, I've also, I've been lucky enough 
um, to work at the Albrecht Festival um, a few years ago. And that's really lovely because, again, the, uh, the town of Albrecht and then snake maltings just down the way, it's suddenly the kind of the community doubles, triples, possibly quadruples in size. Mm. Um, and there's a proper kind of buzz, buzz in the town. And that's really lovely. Yeah, so a really interesting looking uh, festival, as always, uh, from uh, from Wexford. Um, so uh, that will be taking place next autumn. Um, tickets on sale at some point, at, at at some point, point <laughs> in, the, in the near future. If it were Covent Garden, the tickets will be on sale the day before they go on sale, which, <laughs> which appears to be like the way to sell an opera these days. But we're, we're coming on to that. I see what you've done there, Ben, yeah, because you've, a bright lad, are. you've, you've yeah. naturally segued <laughs> yeah. uh, into the next uh, item on this month's uh, agenda. Um, Royal Opera House finding themselves again in hot water um, as the vast majority of tickets for the Kaufman headlined Fidelio have been sold before going on sale to the public. This uh, is because, like many uh, companies, they have a kind of a friends of Covent Garden, friends of the opera scheme, um, and and they've bought up the vast majority of tickets. There's only kind of a few hundred left, a relative handful, uh, for when they actually opened to the general public. Uh, You may remember they had a similar problem earlier this year with, again, uh, Kaufman um, and Anna Netrebko in Forza del Testino, with the vast majority of tickets being sold before the public could get their hands on them, uh, and then seeing tickets going for thousands and thousands of pounds um, online. Now, Emma, obviously the Royal Opera House um, is, a, is a very large organisation. It has a, a lot of money from the public purse. Um, mm. But but is an organisation like this, is is kind of public access to star singers kind of the domain of something like the, the Royal Opera House? You know, shouldn't we just sort of accept that they do 99% of stuff, which is really fantastic with their 25 million subsidy? And and look, if we can't get a ticket to Kaufman in a, in, in a tello, uh, in, in Fidelia, sorry, um, then, then never mind. I mean, for starters, I think this is showing just the power of Kaufman because the fact that it's, you know, two years on the trot and it's, you know, his show. So he's clearly a reason to flock. Yeah, to it's, flock yeah, to it's not getting sold out. Yeah, they've got to see him. If, yeah, they've not got to see Fidelio. I'd love to see, let's have a chat to all these people that have got these tickets, these corporate tickets. Let's have a chat about the opera. Let's have a chat about the music. Let's have a chat, right, what's that overture doing? Which of the Leonora overtures is it? <laughs> they haven't got a clue, have they? They're to see Kaufman. Yeah, that's um, all I, say, I was incredibly lucky. Um, and I did see Forza um, live, and he was amazing. Yeah, he's great. Uh, turned up, jumped through the window. I was like, "Oh, here we go!" Nice, nice. Um, yes, and um, and uh, Papano conducted it phenomenally. Anyway, uh, but it wasn't worth three and a half thousand pounds for my seat. And luckily I didn't pay three and a half thousand pounds. Ridiculous. I was, I was going to say, Emma, I don't know where you found the three and a half thousand yeah, yeah, pounds. Yeah. We won't ask. Yeah. I have friends in high places. <laughs> um, but I think something somewhere along the line, um, the friend scheme of which I know nothing about, so I am very much talking um, out of another part of my, my anatomy here. Where the best is, opinions come from. <laughs> yeah. um, Clearly, somewhere along the way, I think possibly what's happened is the num- the numbers or the weighting of the which tickets that they hold for their friends and which tickets that they they release to the general public. I think they've just got the numbers wrong, and when it, and probably you know once a year there is the hot ticket, and I think that they've just not got their percentages right. So that you know I'm being very generous towards them here, and potentially I'm in inverted commas here. Accidentally, they've sold far too many to the friends of Covent Garden. I mean, I think what is slightly redeeming um, is that obviously this is going to be broadcast, so it's not a completely closed shop. I know there is something about 
being in the room itself and like and hearing the orchestra live and hearing the singers live but I've been to a fair number of the cinema screenings and I've always had a great time when I've gone so I mean, yeah I, I, it is it's a tricky one yeah I, I do like the cinema screenings but I am concerned that more and more the argument for these sorts of things is well, well never mind because it's going to be on cinemas I know, so the yeah. plebs can push their nose at the gate and sort of peek in <laughs> that's, that's what it is isn't it? it's not like yeah, yeah you can't come in we don't want you here you know and, but we'll show you what we're doing yeah and it's, yeah. Something, it's something that we've we've talked a little bit about but i, I don't think it, it, enough really is this sort of push to get get operas on screen and, and online which i say in many respects is 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 great for kind of the casual goer but more and more what it seems to be doing is sort of pushing that opera experience for most people into a into a screen yeah yeah which is i mean it's not why we're sat around microphones today is it because no. you know because it's, it's we least, see operas on a screen yeah you it's know? the least small i mean that in a certain sense of the word it's the least small art form out there isn't it opera is about scale if yeah. you go if you go see I don't know, any of them, Trovatore or something like that. Massive chorus, massive orchestra, the huge voices. Yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm, I like going to the cinema and watching it. It's great. And I live up here. I can't go to Covent Garden. I live, I live up around, around Leeds. But it, if people think that is the operatic experience, when I'm watching it at the cinema, I can substitute in my head all the live opera I've seen so I understand it in the bigger context. If that's all you've seen, then you're definitely missing out a big chunk of of the operatic experience and what makes our art form unique and why why we love it and why we believe in it. So I'm going to be less generous to Covent Garden. <laughs> I, I I think there's plenty of people there that do the outreach they have to do to get they're, they're quite like that twenty five million quid and if it could keep coming that'd be grand. So they're going to do the outreach they have to do to keep it doing, but they don't want to do that. What they want to do is them and their mates see Kaufman sing Fidelio or a teller, or whatever, and they'll have a lovely night. And they've got some wonderful, wonderful musicians that'll be great, be really, really good, and they can have a lovely time. Yeah. And I'm convinced that's what it is. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know whether we just sort of give them the one production a year where they can justify the mm. Friends memberships and they can they can rake it in on the box office and, you know, whether that's... Do they subsidise some, do you reckon? Do you reckon all, that, all their friends and that... Is, is the money that they're making there being shoved back into expanding what they do introducing new audience well i mean there's 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 never going to be any way that they can put on a, a fidelia with the orchestra and the cast and kaufman and, and make it make it pay from three grand a ticket from friends well well on the black market you know which is not then going into into, yeah, into the opera no, i mean going back to your point earlier emma i mean what a lot of the country house operas do with these sort of friend schemes because again a lot of the tickets there are, are very in demand um yeah. i mean a they're not necessarily publicly funded organizations so they can do whatever they want up to them yeah um, but b that there is a, often a cap and there are waiting lists to even mm. join friend schemes so if you want to be you know one of the friends of glyndebourne or whatever their scheme is called you know you have to join a waiting list for 20 years until the slot opens up. And that's exactly as you said. It's to make sure that we've not got 10,000 friends yeah. saying you can have priority access, but only 1,000 tickets. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So they do kind of have that sort of thing in, in place, which perhaps doesn't happen so much at, at Covent Garden. I mean, they would they would make the argument that there are still tickets available and there's this Friday rush scheme. They, but... they need to be more creative about this. I'm arm wrestling. Uh, yeah. like that, some sort of sporting event. Yeah, jelly wrestling. Jelly wrestling, the winner, the winner gets to see Calvin. <laughs> These people have no creativity. No, it's all a bit dull, isn't yeah, it? it is you really, know. Yeah. Um, 
so anyway, we'll see. I mean, you, you'll if you can't get a ticket, you'll be able to catch it in the cinema, as as we said. Yeah. But whether that's com- whether that's missing the point, um, I'd be really interested to hear uh, other people's uh, opinions on this. Do we just accept that uh, not being able to see Kaufman is the the price we pay for everything else that the the Royal Opera does, or is this the whole point of their publicly funded existence? Um, do get in touch. A couple of pieces of competition news. The Australian soprano Kendra Howarth has won this year's Grange Festival singing competition. Um, I saw her earlier on this year in Das Rheingold at Grimebon, and she was absolutely fantastic. Um, so a worthy winner there. Congratulations to Kendra. Uh, and also Buxton Festival has won the Opera Award at this year's UK Theatre Awards for their world premiere production of Georgiana. Uh, well done to Buxton and to Kendra. Uh, something we keep returning to here on the pod is the issue of ethical fundraising. Who should we take money from um, and who should we reject money from in sponsoring the arts? Um, we've had two more theatres recently that have rejected funding, this time not from Big Oil, but instead from the Sackler Trust. That's the Roundhouse Theatre and the Donmar Warehouse in London. Um, now, many of you, I'm sure, will have been following this. Um, uh, Teresa, uh, Teresa and Mortimer Sackler, um, who run the trust, um, also run a, a big pharmaceuticals company in the US, um, who've been blamed largely for the um, opioid crisis happening out there. Um, a lot of organisations and charities um, not taking funding from them any longer. Um, they are still, um, not to lay into the Royal Opera House too much today, but they are still listed as funders on the Royal Opera House's uh, website. We've spoken before about about BP Ben. We've now got a big yeah. case in the in the in the Sackler Trust. It's it's something that is becoming more and more a, a, a moral quandary for organisations. And, and quite rightly so. It has to be. It has to be. We can't. You can't enjoy a night at the theatre if you know this is being funded by people who are essentially profiting off the drugs, mil- the drugs misery of millions of Americans. And then, and then the money's coming back in, and oh, we're having a lovely night at the theatre. You can't. That's got to pr- to play on your conscience about that. Because if we don't, where do we do, where do we draw the line? Is it's like particularly the big cities of Bristol and Liverpool, are built on the back of the slave trade. And at the time, of slave money made those places amazing. Quite rightly, that's appalling. We've so we don't, we don't visit Liverpool. We do, well, we do, we do visit Liverpool, but we, we don't <laughs> make money off it. We don't. You, you cannot just shut your eyes and go, we'll take your money from anywhere. Oh, what a lovely middle-class evening we're having at the theatre. I think it's absolutely right that these theatres said we're not having your money, you can keep it. I do more and more see pictures on Twitter of singers flying off to Saudi Arabia or yeah. Gulf Gulf states to go and do... I've got some opinions about that as well. ...go and do yeah, performances yeah. And, 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 and whatnot. And um, it does seem a little bit odd to me, not so much that they're doing that, I mean, if that's what you want to do, fine, but there is there is such a discussion about, you know, BP sponsoring the Royal Opera and the Sackler Trust and whatnot, yeah. but, but there, there are loads of... Loads of people are going out to these kind of states to 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 sing to do songs for murderers in in times. I had some straight string quartet I know went um, um, to Dubai and played essentially for for people high up in the echelons there. And these were people directly linked to atrocities, and um, but they pay exceptionally well. And and I, th- I think we've got to as performers as as musicians just as humans. Be a little bit more discerning about who and why why we work for this. We'll create operas which lament the suffering of of the unfortunates of Madame Butterfly, whoever. But then that'll be funded from people who've made money on making real unfortunates in the world. This this is immoral. What about you? If we if you know the um, Saudi Arabia flew you out to direct Cozy Fantuti at enormous expense, would you would you be up for that? I mean, it, it's re- it's. I'd feel very uncomfortable saying yes to it. 
And obviously, you know, in hypotheticals, you can say, oh, yes, no, I definitely, I definitely, definitely wouldn't. Um, and I like to think that if, if it was offered to me, I would, I would have enough of a moral backbone and say, thank you, but no, thank you. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's really hard to separate. Um, it can be really hard rather to separate the money from the people that have, um, how they've made their money. And, um, I think, I think it's incredibly uh, brave of Roundhouse and also the John Marr to turn around and say, actually, we'll be fine. Because I think it's quite a big chunk of their um, their funding. And it's, and it's you know, they're not the biggest organisations in the world, these two theatres. So for them to actually turn around and say, you know what, actually, uh, we'll sleep better at night if we don't have this money. Um, and especially, I think it was the Roundhouse that said it would, um, if they took it, it would detract from the work that they do with their with their young people. So I think I'm um, right thinking of the Roundhouse is in um, a slightly deprived area of London, and I think yes. they're doing lots of amazing outreach to kids that are at risk. And to then essentially take drug money would, you know, just not really kind of line up with their ethos. Um, obviously, the Royal Opera House is a humongous organisation, and they could probably quite easily say no to their Sackler funding because they would be able to find it somewhere else. Um, so I guess we'll just have to wait and see what they do. Very true. We will um, we will keep following uh, mm. this on uh, on Operacast, um, and I think keep following as well. As you said, you know, this uh, more and more singers and, and directors are kind of being flown out to, to do things over there. It'd be, be interesting to see um, certainly some of the uh, should we say see if some of the hypocrisy starts yeah. to fall into things when people's purses are, are, are aligned individually. Mm. And um, yes, I for one, I'm not judging either way, but I think we need to. I am. Pen uh, <laughs> <laughs> is and always yeah, and always yeah. Just to be clear on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The 2020 International Opera Awards nominations are now open and you, dear listener, can uh, submit your nominations to be considered for next year's awards. Now, there is no best opera podcast no. category, um, <laughs> but I'm sure if we all write in on mass, we could make it happen for 2021. Um, related to the nominations, we, we've had a question uh, come in from a listener. And I think a lot of the time, obviously, on the podcast, we talk about the big issues in the opera world and that's what we're here for. But sometimes we kind of miss just celebrating the things that are great about what we see on stage. So related to that, we've had a question come in asking kind of who um, the panellists' kind of favourite singers today are, particularly those singers who are perhaps kind of on that on the cusp of kind of being a really big a really big name. So I'll I'll pick on Ben you're first. Pick, you know, you pick on me. If, if someone who, could kind of drag you out of Yorkshire to come, I've heard there are places. There's two <laughs> two places in the world. There's Yorkshire and not Yorkshire, and that, that covers the <laughs> u, that covers the universe as far as I'm concerned. Um, who do I really really like? I don't know. Do you know? I don't know the. Do you know the singer that has impressed me most recently? I don't know the bloke's name. It was when Atello was um, from Covent Garden and Kaufman was doing a tell-up and it was an odd cinema and I went to see it at the cinema and it was the guy singing Iago. And nobody noticed him because everyone on about Desdemona and Atella. The guy singing Iago was absolutely amazing. So David, as we speak, is frantically Googling. So if we could have his name, please. He was quite amazing. Ben, we're supposed to pretend that I know all of the cast that come on my heart. Forever, yeah. Uh... It was him. A few years ago, I said Roddy Williams, but he's there and he's made it into. Oh yeah. Yeah, he's oh, it's lovely. He's great. Oh, it's one, and he's just also just a gorgeous human. I've met him a couple of times, and he's just lovely. But don't you reckon that comes across it if you're a nice human and you can tell on yeah. stage, can't you? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, come on, David, get googling. Come on, <laughs> David, come on. Googling. you're frantically googling. We'll we'll cut this out. Marco... <laughs> what, why? This is Radio Mar- Gold. <laughs> Marco. <laughs> Vratonia. Ma- Marco Vratonia. He was quite amazing, that lad. 
There we are. Um, that's that's a completely new, new name to me. So there we are. Yeah. There's 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 Ben's pick. Didn't know his name, but that's Ben's the, the, pick. Yeah, but I enjoyed his work. Um, Emma, uh, your turn. My, okay. Well, I mean, I this is might seem like quite an obvious um, choice because she has just won the audience prize at Cardiff Singer. Um, but Katie Bray is just wonderful. Um, I've been very very lucky to work with her a couple of times, and she's an incredible artist and also a really lovely colleague. And the voice is just stunning um and the stage presence goes with it so i'm a big fan of katie's mm, yeah i mean obviously on the, the podcast this year we've we've, we've picked out katie bray as being a particular favorite of ours <laughs> yeah. and um, adriana gonzalez as well who um was you know we uh tipped her before she went and won operalia so we'd like to kind of um give ourselves a pat on the back for that um a, a couple more i would pick out rupert charlesworth is a, is a absolutely phenomenal mm, um yes. tenor um who again is kind of i think on the cusp of that international greatness but Rupert Charlesworth is fantastic also as well um I was going I will say Erin Morley who I think has has gone past that stage of up and coming now um but I saw Erin in Condide at Carnegie Hall last year and she was just fantastic and I saw her as well I sound very international at the Vienna Staatsoffer so I saw her in New York and I saw her in Vienna um those are my two holidays um um and she's just absolutely fantastic so if I you know, I was Jamie Barton's one I say, but there's no way Jamie Barton can be undiscovered no, anymore. No, no, no. Um, so I think R- Rupert and Erin for for me, if I had to pick, if I had to pick them. Um, so if you've got favourite singers, favourite productions from the past year, go over to the International Opera Awards website to make your nominations and email them and make yeah. them put in a best podcast category. Actually, who was that countertenor that does this Bartley impression? Oh, Justin Kim. That is yeah. quality. <laughs> that is yeah. quality. He's also fantastic. Yeah. Um, our guest on last month's pod. Do go back and listen to our interview with, with Justin. He's uh, yeah. brilliant as well. A good shout out, Ben. There's been a very lengthy um, and pretty good um, essay in the stage newspaper on opera's gender problem. Um, again, this is something we've we've covered before and, and Swapra's stats that they released this year was certainly uh, very enlightening. Not surprising, um, but good to see it on, on, on paper. Um, again, just to kind of remind people, you know, they found that 25% of, of directors working in opera last year were, were female, only 10% of conductors were female. Um, and now I think the reason why this stage article has come out now is that Annalise Miskimmon has been appointed the new artistic director of English National Opera. Um, so a, a rare opportunity to kind of see a, a woman in one of those kind of leadership positions. Um, we do have a few, it should be said, in in. Uh, opera here in in the UK. Um, Anne-Lise at ENO, we've already mentioned Rosetta Cucci now at, at Wexford. You've got Waswi Carney and um, Christine Chibnall at, at, at Opera and Authors as well. Um, so I wonder, first off, Ben, is is more the question, are we going in the right direction rather than sort of railing against where we yeah. are now? The thing I can talk about with some knowledge is conducting. It's what I am and, and, and I see. And I think the tide, there's work to do, but the tide has been turned. In my what I've seen at the Royal Northern, for example, in my work at Leeds College of Music, is conducting classes which are much nearer 50-50 splits. I think it's very difficult if there's been this inequality and imbalance in the training to suddenly expect at the top of the profession to be inequality. I think because otherwise, to get that, you'd have to promote people and add the training. But what's lovely to see is that the training is becoming more and more, perhaps not a bang, I wouldn't like to say bang 50-50, but getting much more equal. And as that generation comes through, I think we'll see that inequality start to start to go away. Hmm. So so I, I, I personally think in conducting the tide has been turned. There's been some, there has been one or two really big appointments of female conductors and and the tide's been turned, there's work to do, but I'd like to think we're marching in the right direction. Yeah. Um, 
Emma, as our kind of you know non-white male on today's um, on today's <laughs> podcast, I mean, hi, yeah, I mean, how how have you kind of found making your way in 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 opera? You know, you've been kind of freelance in the industry for for a number of of, of years now, working for lots of different companies, um, you know, kind of across the a country and and, and further afield. I mean, what's your kind of experience been of of working as a as a as a, as a woman kind of making your way as a director? Um, well, actually, the um, the person who first championed me, um, basically set me on this path, uh, was Christine Chibnall at Opera North. Um, she she interviewed me for something for an administrative job that I was not right for, <laughs> um, and we ended up talking about my um, my <clears throat> excuse me my directorial ambitions. Um, and then she sent me a lovely email saying, "When you're ready to have a proper chat about this." let me know. Um, and about a year later, um, I was working at Opera North at the time um, in their administrative department and I knocked on her door and said, I'm ready to have that chat now. And she was fantastic. And we kind of talked about what I needed to do before I could go freelance and kind of people I should talk to and people I should shadow. And she was incredibly um, a generous with her time and also her expertise. Um, and I can very safely say I would not be doing what I'm doing right now if it wasn't for her mentorship um, six, seven years ago. Um, so that kind you know, I've been very fortunate. I've had, you know, woman in power has taken me under her wing and has given me the push that I needed. Um, I obviously, I can't say if, if um, I'd had an interview and and you know, and had been opposite you know, a male planning director. If I if he'd have you know if he'd have picked me up out of the crowd and said, let's have a chat. I obviously you know that's an alternative reality reality I don't live in, so I can't say what would have happened. Um, and then in terms of working for directors, um, when I when I'm an assistant director, I was thinking about this um, the other day after I read the article. I've actually I've worked for quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of women. Um, and I've worked with quite a lot of men. And basically, directors are directors are directors. Um, some of them are brilliant. Some of them aren't. There's no, like, every woman director is amazing and every man, male director is, you know, stuck up and annoying. That's definitely not, not the case. Um, and I can't necessarily say if I have any favorites. I've learned from all of them. And I think there's definitely... Um, there was something in the in the stage article. There's something about you know the um, the white male posh boy, or sorry, the white posh boy. Um, and actually, I've in my line of work so far haven't come across too many of them, which I think might make me in the minority, or it could be that the winds truly are changing, and that there just aren't that many of them around. Not that there's anything wrong with them, but there are a lot of them, and they do tend to kind of cloud, um, sorry, uh, swamp the field. Uh, but one thing I did want to wanted to bring up was uh, a, a tweet that I saw yesterday um, from Matt Hemley, who, mm. according to his Twitter bio, works at the stage. Um, and it says, uh, my three-year-old has become obsessed with watching the CBB's prom conducted by Jessica Cottis. When I grow up, I'd like to be a conductor like Jessica, she says. And then he then goes on to say that this is you know, the importance of representation and visibility in one sentence. Because if you know if little girls aren't seeing, or want to be conductors, but aren't seeing any conductor, any female conductors, um, then they might not know that that is a is an option for them. I know that Helen, who's been on your podcast before, is really keen to kind of get yeah, as as Ben is as well. Um, that the training is becomes more more and more fifty fifty. Because you're right, if we don't train people now, then in twenty years time, we're still going to be having this conversation. The point in the pyramid isn't there where we need equality of opportunity. It's not, mm. it's not a quality of outcome at the top of the pyramid. It's at Covent Garden. It's a quality of opportunity 
somewhere lower. So everyone, regardless of anything, has got that fair chance. I think yeah. that's what's desirable. Yeah. You, you need that mass, that mass pool that mass of people pool. coming through. Yeah. Because the other thing is, I think it's a wider discussion about diversity in our art. What, what we want is diversity of thought. If we're going to try and create as diverse a, a work of art, a body of art in society as possible, we need diversity of thought. And this sort of comes into the experience of people. The, the, the ideology of the racist or the misogynist is that, that our gender or our skin colour results in something termed tangibly different about us. There's a difference to us because of those things. So I'd, I'd completely get rid of that and say what makes a difference is our experiences. Our thoughts are the result of the experiences we've had through life. So if we put um, BAME artists or women artists or men artists that are all privately educated, middle class, go through the traditional training schemes, they will create the work that is the product of that experience, regardless mm, of their yeah. gender or their colour or out. Whereas some chippy working class lad off a Beeston council estate is going to have a completely different experience and their work that they may create is going to be more diverse than the, the BAME artist that's had a, a very traditional upper class, upper class upbringing. So what I'd like to see is that to... to by accepting, by rejecting, sorry, the ideology of the racist and misogynist that what makes us different is our gender or our colour, it's not, it's our experiences. So if people are valued for those experiences above and beyond anything else, then differences in gender, colour, race actually become totally irrelevant and we're all judged equally as a product of our experiences. And I think that's what's desirable and that creates the broadest body of art. That's Indeed. my two penneth. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a very interesting message um, the other day from, from someone with ex experience of, of, of this. Yes, talking about gender, but as you quite rightly said there, Ben, I mean, I, we don't want to ignore the gender question, but there are much no. bigger questions over, over economic disadvantage, yeah, over, over, over BAME, kind of the community there that just is represented even even less equally yeah. with, with an opera. Um, so we'll be returning to this um, with um, the, the, the person that kind of contacted us the other um, week on next month's pod. Finally, we, we can't um, escape, or at least I, I, I don't want to escape the ongoing kind of uh, Domingo case, yeah, and yeah, I, don't yeah. want to, I don't want to talk about it ad, ad nauseum. But, but I wonder if, again, this case speaks to, a, 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 again, the kind of an ingrained gender problem in, in opera, the amount of people that, the amount of very notable people in the industry that continue to, to kind of um, stick up to him, defend him, and reject yeah. everything that's been made, you know, and I'm, I'm not going to make any assumption of of guilt but there's kind of an assumption that he is untouchable and we had it last month with with Bryn Turfel's comments that you know if you put yourself in a position with Domingo that's up to you to do what you want to do I mean there's something ingrained there about the the male maestro yeah. that is but quite I, unsettling that seems to be a big part of the industry what I don't want to hate about it is it's abuse of power that's what it is that's what it is he can do this so he did do that and and it's that complete power inequality that, that I struggle with more than anything in that. The thing is, it's been an open secret for decades. I've, ne I've never met him. I've never worked at that level. But I've known that Plasto Domingo's a bit that way out for, for years. But suddenly, it's as if we've reached a tipping point where as a society we're saying, that's unacceptable. But I, I, I and think... Then we, and, then, and then we go for him. Yeah, but again, I, I don't want to get onto this too much because we did discuss it la yeah. last month. But it, it, it does seem that with, with Domingo, much, much more the general sort of thing in the industry is to kind of defend and actually not not take him out whereas in other in film and tv and whatnot you know people people accused have been have been ostracized more than domingo yeah, has only the last few years 
It's a new thing, isn't it? It, it is yeah. a new thing, but you know, Domingo is, is still a relatively new case. Yet more yeah. seems to be to kind of keep keep keeping kind of close to us. And again, this just seems there's something about opera that is just not quite getting with the, the times, program. the zeitgeist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we always every so often it feels like we're still twenty, thirty years behind the rest of our artistic peers, which is can be incredibly frustrating. Um, I went to see something. Um, at, at Covent Garden earlier in the year, and for the life of me, I cannot remember what production it was, but in the interval, I was looking through the programme, and the entire creative team and the conductor was all male. And I was like, oh, that's that's really depressing, <laughs> because, you know, not, not even a token woman, um, which speaks to kind of the fact that we are can be slightly lagging. And then with Domingo, I think, because he is such a huge name, that people are probably being slow to come down on one side or the other because if you come down on the we never want we never want to employ him ever again unfortunately there is a financial knock-on effect i know you talked about it last month but i can it's a really tricky one because obviously he's you know if if he has done all these things that he's been accused of then um you know he should never be employed ever again um but there is a bit of kind of um it's i think it's just a really it's a really complicated situation and organizations have to take it upon themselves to decide what they want to do regarding and i think it's there's been quite an interesting divide across the atlantic um the u.s seems quite keen quite willing to to believe the women as as they should do whereas i think europe we're slightly behind yeah and i think i think more I, i'm less interested in what people do about domingo and more what the general um uh, approaching conversation around it says about yeah opera i think it matters as well what environment we create now for people working in industry i mean you shouldn't have done those things in 1970 whatever but i'm much more interested in what sort of safe friendly kind welcoming working environment we're putting in place for for tomorrow rather than what happened 10 years back that's what matters where we're going from here yeah Absolutely. Again, this is something that, that won't go away. And I said, we'll be returning to it from, from lots of different angles, not just not just gender, but there are other things that we need to kind of think about as well. Um, next month, our interview will be with Sarah Hopwood, the managing director of Glyndebourne. Um, again, another one of these um, perhaps kind of slight outliers of someone in um, senior positions in, uh, in the arts. So, uh, so do tune in next month uh, for our exclusive interview with Sarah. Sticking with this month, however, we're now going to move on to our um, interview for this month, which is with the Canadian baritone Gerald Finlay. I had the supreme pleasure of sitting down with Gerald at the Royal Opera House a couple of weeks ago to discuss his career, and we looked forward to his appearance in the Royal Opera's new production of Death in Venice. So I'm here today at the Royal Opera House with an an absolute opera legend, I think it's fair to say, Gerald Finlay. Uh, How are you? Thank you for joining us. Oh, great to be here. Great to be here. So you're celebrating this year 30 years at the Royal Opera House. Ooh, not so loudly. Yeah. It's <laughs> a long time. Let's start with the quiz question. What was your yeah. first role here at Covent Garden? Well, I was a Flemish deputy in Don Carlo. Uh, I was a group, uh, part of a group of six baritones, and uh, we all come on during the Auto de Fe in the middle of Don Carlo and, yeah, sing a nice little unison aria, which is quite funny to, because you're all hopefuls. You know, to to as young singers, you're you're, you're thinking, oh, you know, to share a role uh, at the very start of your career is uh, is is a little challenging. You get no, no one's going to hear me individually. So, um, uh, but it was a wonderful group of of singers, and uh, my word to be on the stage of Covent Garden that you know had a had a 
tender age and just out of the chorus at Glyndebourne. It was a real, it was a real thrill. Well, first test passed. You remembered that, so yeah. so so well done. Um, you were going to correct me if I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, <so. laughs> I hadn't written it down, but I had it in my head what it was. Yeah. Um, so obviously, thirty years. You've been here many times. Progressed through the ranks, which we'll we'll talk about about later. But have there, have there been any kind of particular moments, productions, roles that really kind of stand out for you in that time? Well, I guess the the following production, following uh, Don Carlo, in nineteen eighty nine, I then came and did Figaro. Uh, in the marriage of Figaro, um, in the, I would have said it was the Peter Hall production, but I might stand corrected as to what that was. That that's good for fact checkers. To, uh, to, <laughs> S- to someone will write in. Don't so, worry. Yes. <laughs> uh, and my Bartolo was Stafford Dean, the wonderful British bass uh, of some legend as well. And and the Count was then Thomas Allen. And it was really, I had been doing f- the role of Figaro in The Marriage of Figaro for some oh, five or s- five years or so then. And I continued to do it for another five years after that. But that was the seminal moment when I realized that actually to, to have a really, really good uh, cast of Marriage of Figaro, you needed to have a strong count and someone who absolutely... Um, thought the opera was about him. And from then on, I realized that, that the Count was essential for the role of Figaro. So, and I enjoyed my next few productions that I did um, up until my last Figaro as Figaro was in 2003. So that was some eight years onwards. But then I started to realize that mm, my Counts after Tom Allen weren't quite up to the same intensity or had trouble grasping the essentials of the dramatic role. And I thought, I, I think that maybe I could do that. And it was really uh, as a result of Tom being such a wonderful Count that I started to think, oh, maybe the Count is something that I'd like to aspire to. Is the Count not a more exciting role than Figaro to get your teeth into? Well, yes, but I, m- most of the counts that I had uh, worked with were very just worried about the singing of it, worried about the act three aria. It has a high note and then lots of low notes, and and you then see, you see the panic in singers a lot of the time, yeah, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Let's concentrate and, now. And then there's the the, the beautiful mellifluous apology phrase at the very very end, contessa perdono, and. And once you've sung a whole evening, to, to come up with the kind of almost your best mellifluous singing at the very end of the opera is, is actually a psychological um, challenge. And Tom Allen was really the person that exemplified the ten- tenacity, really, at making the count from the moment he entered with um, Susanna in Act One to... It's just he, he, he was there from start to finish, and I thought that's that's something to aspire to, and so I've spent the rest of my marriage of Figaro career trying try trying to live up to trying that. to live up to his uh, his his great um, uh, uh, his his great manifestation of that. Now, one production that you, you might remember for all the wrong reasons, potentially, is the, the William Tell from a few years ago, which mm-hmm. obviously generated a huge amount of um, interest, not all for the, 
um, the positive, it's, it's fair to say. When you're involved with a production where so much is going on off the stage, so many opinions going around about the production, how do you as a performer sort of kind of try and stay in the production, kind of give it your, give it your best, stay focused when so much is going on around it? Well, I really did learn from a really early age uh, in, as a singer that actually from opening night, you're a team that, that each cast member is doing their best, that everybody is there to present a drama with wonderful music and, you know, the, the things that you've rehearsed are the things that you want to uh, put forward every performance. Um, and for that reason, actually, and I, I, it was really, I think, after one of my very, I had been talking about The Marriage of Figaro previously, and uh, I remember coming to a second night after having read reviews, shall we say, or opinions or whatever, after the first night. There had been a long enough gap for the reviews to have come out. And the atmosphere was completely different. It was my own attitude. It was, you know, I offer colleagues that hadn't received positive reviews or whatever. I want, you know, one was slightly commiserating with them. I, I had a sense of, oh, well, what's happened to our team? We've been together for rehearsal period and wh what's going on here? Um, and from that moment, I thought, why should I be influenced by what's going on out there? But the, our job is absolutely on the stage. Our job is to fulfill the, the wishes of the conductor and, and uh, to the best of our ability, sing as well as we can, present the characters that we've been rehearsing in the rehearsal room and on the rehearsal stages up until the opening night, and then maintain it, and then develop a chemistry on stage. Everything else is minor. Everything else is irrelevant, absolutely. Uh, you know, we can, okay, at the end of a run, at the end of a series of performances, to gain, okay, people's opinions, insights, whatever. But really to be distracted is really the word by, by the, commentation, the, the commentators on either social media or in print or, or, you know, in interviews or whatever about a particular circumstance, incident or anything that's had to, you know. The wonderful thing about opera is it's a live event. It's a circus wire act. And yes, there are thrills and there's, there's, there's uh, element of danger, risk. Um, you know, it's a thrill to hear someone reach a top C um, and sustain it. Maybe that little bit more than you expect or sing a top note or, or sing so beautifully that your heart melts. And that's why I love opera as a live event more than anything. It's why I do it, what I do. And the chemistry is about what happens on stage. You do get an idea from an audience, of course, whether they're enjoying it or not. You know, they can get vociferous, shall we say, in their both appreciation and their uh, displeasure. Uh, I know that a director's or any performer's nightmare is to walk on the stage at the end of a performance and have no applause, no reaction. You want to provoke a reaction, I suppose, don't you? There's, a, of course, it, you want to feel that people have spent the last few hours engaged, that they haven't switched off, that they're not rushing to get the train, that they're actually going to talk about it as they leave the theatre, not what they had for dinner. So, yeah, for me, the, the impact 
not in any way to be provocative or anything, but to deal with the issues that are presented by the composer and librettist. And hopefully to say, yes, those performers did give of their all, gave you know as much as they can of themselves, their, their acting and singing abilities. So yeah, the particular um, uh, occasion of William Tell, 2015, uh, okay, it, it was a bit of a stir, and there was you know, I was asked in interviews about it, and I said we've got on with our job. Uh, unfortunately, being a singer is a, is a profession, and the elements of presenting a piece of theatre. Um, I did, in fact, relate the time when I, as an audience member, went to Lear, King Lear, at the National Theatre, and the the bloodshed on stage was so realistic that people were standing up in the audience shouting and yet in the theater in straight theater didn't seem to provoke any it was realistic and shocking and and tumultuous and people were gasping and <gasps> practically fainting but the national theater wasn't taken to task about the realistic element of that performance yeah things the things in the theater can be shocking and operas, a theater performance. And I'm not making apologies for any of the, the violence or representation of violence that happened. However, we get much more of it on TV and other media sources now. And when you are sitting in an opera audience, of course, if you feel a reaction, I'm pleased. One doesn't want to traumatize anybody, but it is a risk. Every time you go to the theatre or the circus, you might be confronted with... But as you say, you want people to feel something, I think is what it is, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, it might not always be for everyone, but, you know, not everything is going to be for everyone. No, and people can vote with their feet, of course, if they don't want to come to to uh, situations which operas present uh, civil tumult, uh, rebellion, uh, death by decapitation, um, you know, uh, Zalame is a perfect thing. There's a quite a lot in Zalame, you know, Strauss's Zalame, which people, when they buy their ticket, know that things are going to happen. Sometimes they buy the ticket in order to participate in that experience. William Tell is a revolutionary opera and has elements of revolutionary and confrontational behavior. I'm sorry that people felt compelled to condemn it uh, as a representation because I think we as artists of course never want to put people in as I said into trauma but I also feel we have to be honest people ask me why I do bad characters why I play villains and it's not because I am a villain and I want to you know express my evil intent in the world in a in the protective cover of being in an opera no i'm trying to present the the authentic view of what what trauma and 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 horrible things can confront people in their daily life or in relationships or in uh in difficult um personal circumstances and of course opera expands on these feelings and, and situations and, and music is this 
way in which we can present awful situations in a way that can guide us emotionally from a from a bad place to hopefully a, a place of redemption and i have to play an evil character with the best of my ability to make it real talking about evil characters you've just returned from japan on tour with the the, the royal opera house where you've been playing uh, iago yeah um how was the the japan experience oh i must say um being on tour with a group of uh, musicians and, and performers from the Royal Opera was really one of the most, uh, yeah, fulfilling artistically and socially um, experiences that I've, I've had in a long time. Everybody's out to perform their best. The, the reception in Japan and the, the audiences are, are unbelievably respectful, appreciative, uh, happy that we make the 12,000 mile journey. Um, to to a part of the world where classical music is appreciated and 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 mm, accepted as a as a as an art form as a as a form of entertainment which is really highly highly revered. Um, the the extent of appreciation goes to people um, stopping us in the street for our autograph. I mean, it really, it's feeling a bit like a a rock star. Um, they they really well, that was a nice nice few days then was it you know they, uh, absolutely and 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 no we felt very 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 appreciated um, and Japan itself is an extraordinary country which which is also worth exploring. Now you obviously perform in opera houses and for companies around the world. Mm. You know if we kind of blindfolded you and put you on a stage somewhere with the audience reaction you mentioned there are, are there very kind of different ways you find audiences react in different countries or in kind of different houses is there kind of a you know kind of a style or a, a kind of a reaction that you you know to expect when you're somewhere sure i mean talking about the sort of the villainous characters that i've been playing recently um here in the uk of course there's a tradition of the pantomime sort of uh booing at the at the villain uh when he takes his curtain call now that can be really confronting for <laughs> for artists that aren't familiar with that tradition uh, is that something that you're happy with and it's been it's been talked about a bit recently well, hasn't it the, you know i'm 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 um uh again it, you know the audience reaction is is what it's about <laughs> you've done your job you know if that's how they react created a, uh, you know a visceral visceral reaction <laughs> no of course and uh the what, what can i say the the temperature of of japanese response is um, it's absolute respect, re reverence, and uh, there's no crying out so much of, of bravos and, and whooping, shall we say. Um, in, in Europe, of course, the idea of whistling, and particularly in, f in football matches, where, where s spectators and fans disagree with the referee's decision, whistling is a way of showing complete displeasure. Where if, if you hear that in the in the opera house in Europe, then you're thinking, oh, is that, you know, a, a negative reaction or or an expression of dis disdain for what they've just heard or seen? Um, it's it's it can be go both ways. Whistling in the United States, however, is an absolute cheering feeling, and and there's generally the people, I would have said in North America, tend to get onto their feet when they've been moved uh, and enjoyed the opera performances. So l many more standing ovations I've, I've 
been aware of, say, in North America. Um, so yeah, lots of different places. So yeah, there's there's definitely, um, and I, I haven't yet been to, been to La Scala, so, uh, and I understand that they give singers a particularly hard time yes. if, if they Strong haven't, reactions. Delivered, haven't delivered the goods yeah. uh, in a singing way. Some very handy tips there with someone singing in a foreign country. Uh, the, the whistling's very interesting. If you're yeah. North American here whistling and you're an Italian singer, yes. you know. You're yes, absolutely. You think you're quite you're, terrified. Yeah, your, your debut is a complete disaster, you think. But then, but then they hire you again and they go, what? <laughs> now, again, on, on that theme of, of, of appearing around the world for different companies, I, I'm interested when, when you're performing, you know, here at the, the Royal Opera or Glamour or wherever it might be, are you very conscious of the company that you're performing for the theatre, you, you know, when you're rehearsing at the moment for, you know, Death in Venice, you're thinking, right, I'm at the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden, I know the history, I know everything about it, or are you just focused purely on the team you're with, the rehearsal room? Does that extra external stuff not come into it? Well, first of all, it's a huge privilege, you know, to, to sing on one of the world's most famous stages, um, to think of the people that have been here before. I... For me, I think one of the great, great pleasures, particularly as a younger singer, uh, when you're, say, taking part in a production that's already been been uh, mounted a number of times throughout history, um, costumes. When you go to your costume fitting, <laughs> you might possibly be being fitted, and the labels are in the, in the back of the costume. You, you, you are literally putting on the costume of a legend uh in, do, do you have in some nice surprises there we go oh look i'm you know oh sure i mean the first time i put on sam raimi's uh don giovanni costume it was like no this is this cannot be happening <laughs> i mean he was my great one of my great idols when i was growing as a young singer certainly um oh you're pleased to find that you're, you're a couple of trousers sizes less than thomas allen or something well, you know you have those yeah. moments where <laughs> And well, yeah, or or they would say it. Well, at least we can make these fit. Is what the, uh, what the <laughs> they the, are expandable. The, ta the tailors are very very happy to say. Do you want to wear these trousers? And you're thinking, yes, 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 yes. They say, okay, we'll make them fit for you. Uh, whether that's taking in or letting out, that that's uh, certainly a part of the <laughs> part of the adjustment. Um, but of course, that being in in the acoustic of whatever theatre you're in, that's absolutely something that you have to be aware of. The Metropolitan in New York, you've got a vast auditorium, 3,800 seats. Um, you know you have to sing forwards all the time. There's no s pretense at trying to sing directly to your colleagues across the stage because your voice will just disappear. Here at Covent Garden, it's a few fewer seats, uh, but the sort of the red and gold of the auditorium, you can just see that glinting off the reflection of the lights on the stage. Um, and then you have the pit sizes. In, again, in New York, huge, vast pit across which you then have to project your voice again into that huge house. Here, it, uh, the, the pit is nicely uh, tucked under the, the stage or portion of it under the stage. So you know that the sound world that you're, uh, you're, you're riding over is always going to be that little bit much easier. The acoustics of of uh, Royal Opera is really just very, very flattering for, for the voices. There are particular, like in any house, there are spots on the stage which you head for. Normally it's slightly, it's downstage and slightly to one side of, of the center where somehow the acoustic of the, of the stage and the building 
seem to magnify the voice, seem to give you a little bit more presence. Also, you look much better down there. Yeah. Do you ever have ever fight with the director during, you know, kind of stage and piano as you start to wander down and they're sort of going, what are you doing, Gerald? There's, there's always a negotiation yeah, about the, uh, the position of the singer during their famous aria, you know. Um, but for me, it's mostly about the lighting. Um, as soon as you wander out of the light, you know, no one hears you. <laughs> it's, it's not that they don't see you. They, they, they don't hear you because they have no idea where the sound's coming from. Um, so it's good to be on the lighting director's, uh, you know, focus. <laughs> the, the follow spot operator, you know. <laughs> Making sure you give them a... Slip them a tenor and make sure it's... Absolutely that. No, I, I, of course, one doesn't want to be giving uh, arias upside down or lying down at the back of the stage. Uh, the set design is often a question, you know, if you've got open sides, uh, where the, if there's lots of chorus entrances, quick chorus entrances, they like designers like to keep the, the wings open, shall we say, which is not as favorable for singing because you want a nice contained uh, sort of sound box. Designers, I must say, recently are going back to nice hard floors, not so much from the, the, the carpeting uh, or the, the rubber uh, or the you know strange contortion um, floors that uh, that you're trying to climb up and down and sometimes slip down or or I have to say William Tell was particularly challenging because there was earth on the ground so not only was it a sound absorber it also got in your toe in your toes been up all around your feet so you'd always often bring you know, you'd wake up in the morning and there'd be a part of the set in your bed. So, <laughs> you were so it was a bit frustrating that. But, um, yeah, those are small, small um, issues that we have to deal with sometimes. So you're soon to be back on the, the Covent Garden stage in, in Death in Venice, a new production directed yes. by David McVecker, conducted by, by Mark Elder. Yes. Um, now, can I just check? You may, I may be very wrong here, but is this your first kind of major Britain stage role um i did owen wingrave at glyndebourne in 1997 and that was a real uh launch into sort of i would call the lead baritone role of uh of britain uh i had i had obviously as every young baritone would love to do is um uh you know, I, I, I envied my colleagues who got to do Billy Budd mm. very much. That would I seem to be, I, wouldn't say, I don't want to say an obvious one for you, but, you know, it kind of seems to be something that... Yes, I, I, I thought it was too. To be honest, I had uh, three, uh, three opportunities, three productions that, f for whatever reason, uh, I had been booked for, and those productions then fell out of the particular opera house's schedule. So... I was unlucky not to do Billy Budd, um, but I must say one of my first real Britain role uh, was as Bottom in the Midsummer Night's Dream um, at the Royal College of Music all those years ago. Um, we, when the Britain Theatre of the Royal College of Music was opened, we opened with a performance of, of Midsummer Night's Dream. I never reprised Bottom. I, Perhaps one day in the future that might come back. I was going to say, on, on the concert platform, you've done a lot of the songs uh, as well on, on stage and uh, re recordings as well. I mean, does a, does a knowledge of the song repertoire help you when you're coming into uh, a Britain opera, or, or are they, do they seem like very different things? Oh, I, I think Britain's idiom, shall we say, his, his natural... Uh, well, his, the first thing to say about Britain is the, what his meticulousness in terms of the score 
you know, what is in the score, his markings, his uh, very, very precise markings for the singer, both in dynamic and style of singing and uh, pitch-wise, pitch you know, Britain's melodic um, writing is stretched, of course. It's not immediately hummable, uh, shall we say, but that shouldn't put anybody off because his his harmonic language that the whole the the is generally tonal um and there's some fantastic orchestration in death in venice of gamelin and and piano and percussion um huge ensemble work uh from from a lot of the the minor soloists um i'm treating actually the sections because i sing seven different roles um in this in this opera, that's what it's uh, designed to do. The baritone does take on seven different characters, and I'm treating each each character as sort of a miniature song recital um, opportunity. I, I'm sort of learning it as a as seven different song, uh, ju just in a psychological way to get my idea that these each character is very different. Each, uh, and, and for me, it helps to know that I've sung ma very many different Britain songs and he has lots of, um, he, he's very helpful in scoring it in a way that will make each character very different. Well, as you said there, it's a very intense piece, you know, especially for you with all of your many characters, many different hats to wear, maybe yeah. maybe quite literally. Yes. I mean, how do you approach something, a piece like this, which is, I suppose, kind of as much psychological as it is kind of literal and, and narrative? Is there a different way you think about the, the characters or prepare them given that we're kind of taking it's a bit of a kind of a psychological game or journey the piece isn't it absolutely for certainly for uh, um, uh, Gustav von Aschenbach the tenor role um, he's receiving information and and basically you see as you said the journey his journey through uh, confrontation of of uh, pro a provocation shall we say to get from his lack of uh, uh, the stalemate that he's found in his own writing as an author he's provoked by by a vision or is it a, is it a person called the traveler um, that's the first role that I incarnate and from then on there are each subsequent encounter that he has with a principal character who happens to be the baritone um, there is a kind of a strange malevolence or or element of fate that's that's presented in each of those encounters. So six further characters, um, probably another 10 scenes. And yeah, it's, it's wonderful to sort of contemplate. I mean, with David McVicker, of course, there's always a discussion about how that character should, you know, thrust the, you know, the, the confrontation or the element of, um, shall we say, the, the, the reaction of Aschenbach is it is it provocative does he does he take it away and contemplate it um does he react to it you know is there any sense of what is what's the next step in the journey um and th there's the, the really the the most genial i would say of the characters is the hotel manager who provides if almost a sort of a mm, uh, sympathetic caring atmosphere but there's a joy for for me as an actor because it's it's a almost an insincerity um, or lack of sincerity 
in terms of he's doing his job to pretend to look after Aschenbach when he's actually framing the demise, you know. So uh, not pushing him over the edge by any means, but not being helpful to make him avoid it either. You mentioned working with David McVicker there. I mean, generally, what, what is it that you look for in a director? What is it that you need as, a, as, a, as an actor? What is it you're kind of looking to get from a director? Well, it's a two-way street. Uh, that's the main thing to say. And for me, it's, it's uh, offering what I have in terms of ideas or, or portrayal um, that can go as far as, in, particularly in this, this piece, which takes a lot of vocal uh, acting as well as uh, physical transformation. Um, the tessitura of each of my seven characters is different. So I'm hoping to look for a physicality which matches it, which complements it. I'm hoping that David will, well, well you know, in, in working with David McVicker to physicalize and match the vocal writing that Britain has already got um, is, is, a, is an important thing. The, the libretto by Mifanwi Piper is, is, is rich enough to create these, these kind of corners or shall we say these etchings of these particular characters and we are looking at the words and how they're presented and and what is it about each utterance that reinforces the character and the effect on Aschenbach and David is a is 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 one of those directors who enjoys the two-way street he will be suggesting things I will be trying to incorporate them into what I do I will then come back with something and say is this more like what you want or further away so it, it's it, that's what we're looking for is 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 I mean I like to be an ingredient shall I shall we say of a nice big recipe and hopefully by you know once we've reached a, a dress rehearsal those ideas are 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 more or less coalesced um, and generally I'm 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 hope, so happy to get on stage because then I know what the lighting situation is I know what the set is like uh, what the costumes are like, those are all huge ingredients. So, uh, yeah, imagination first, and then, then uh, we put it all Practicalities together. Practicalities yeah. come later. Um, so just kind of looking over your, your career in general, you, you've performed a very broad range of repertoires. You said from kind of the Mozart baritones, the Rossini, the Verdi, the Wagner, the Britain, a lot of contemporary opera as well. Has that kind of variety of repertoire really been kind of key to keeping you interested fulfilled over over the years because some singers have a very narrow range of of what they do and maybe partly that's that's voice and partly that's choice but for you it's been very broad has that been a very kind of deliberate decision on your part i i think i, I mean i would love to say that it was all calculated that in <laughs> fact my you know my broad artistic bent is um you know been satisfied by the vast sort of opportunities that i've had as you say from baroque all the way to contemporary um and to a greater or lesser degree it has had to do with how what state my voice has been in um when i began as a singer i, I can only really now reflect on that i i think i i reached my potential in every part that I, I, I took on and that's not to say that I didn't aspire to sing romantic repertoire or the verismo or the or the bel canto early on I I had those ideas of course that that they would be wonderful to sing but I didn't have the voice in earlier part of my career to sing 
Italianate or dramatic or mm, or verismo things of Puccini. I didn't have an Italianate sound for the uh, for those for those roles. No one would would have heard me singing those roles because I was singing in English or I was singing Baroque music, Handel, Mozart, um, and which is all wonderful music. And I was part of that early music movement in the in the late 80s and early and 90s when uh, original instrument operas were, were going full guns. But then it was Britain, which, you know, Albert Herring and Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, Owen Wingrave, of course. Um, and so my career was Baroque, Mozart, and, and Britain. <laughs> and then with Mark Turnage's Silver Tassie at the ENO in 2000, I suddenly broke into the... Oops, and then with Mark Turner's uh, Silver Tassie at ENO in 2000, I broke into the contemporary world, which then allowed me to start considering roles in, with um, the modern composers Kaya Sariajo um, in L'Amour de Loin, which I took over Europe and Santa Fe in, um, uh, in the United States, and then John Adams' Dr. Atomic. So, wow, that was a great opportunity. It was really then... Singing after singing Dr. Atomic, that I realized that vocally I had, okay, this was an opportunity. What was going to happen? So I went back to singing school. I decided to relearn. I had an opportunity um, to really focus then again on what it was to be a singer and to reset myself. And I started to think, okay, I really wanted to have a long career. How do the long careers happen with good singing? So I found my, re-met my teacher who um, had been a colleague earlier on in our careers, but then he and I have been working to become Italian, more stylistic, more uh, to open up the voice, allow it to expand. That's when Wagner became part of my repertoire, um, as has Scarpia and, uh, and obviously Falstaff and Iago in the Verdi repertoire. So middle baritone roles. And we're still looking. And I'm very, very grateful, even after the 30 years that I've been here at, at Covent Garden, that yes, still, uh, I've got resources and mm, flexibility in the voice. Um, and I'm looking forward to the next 30 years. Well, as you said there, and you, you said in the past, you've had a very steady career to where you are now. And obviously a lot of that has been, as you said, kind of singing roles where your voice was, was ready at the time and, and kind of taking your time in that way. Do you think there's more pressure on younger singers nowadays to kind of have that kind of standout moment or, you know, to kind of push themselves to do things too early? Oh, yes, absolutely, without question. It's, it's part of the culture and, you know, it, when you've been at college singing uh, for, you know, up to seven years where you do th three years of a performing course, two years of a master's and two years of, a, of an opera course, of course, at the end of that, you're thinking, okay, I know it all. Let's get on with it. Let's get on with this career. There's an expectation, of course, fostered, I might say, by the, by the conservatory uh, circumstance that, okay, once you commit, f finish our, um, our finishing school of opera school, you'll be ready. And in fact, that's not really how things used to be. Used to be you started with small roles in an opera house or as a freelance singer, and you would do small roles for a while, and you'd, you'd improve your, 
appreciation say of the demands of the of the um career and you would try and sing better and better and in those small roles you would get you would learn by performing and the challenge these days is that young singers the very good singers of course burst onto the scene and are almost put into situations where there was never any hope that they would survive because the stamina needs to be built up and the pressure of recording and of media and of all the things that that young people now have to do to have a presence shall we say it's really hard to be content with singing as a as a apprentice almost um, to do the apprenticeship stuff right through your 20s and not expect any lead roles much before your early 30s or or mid 30s say but everybody wants to hear the tenor at 25 who's you know now you said you're you're still potentially looking at, at, at new things to do, new ways to go. We said before you've done most of the repertoire, um, but I know that a few years ago you had to pull out of doing a production of Sweeney Todd. Is that potentially the the kind of the the final stone to be unturned for for Gerald Finley? Is it kind of moving into potentially a, a, a musical? Well, I'm sure I'm sure the world would love to see <laughs> the Finley the Finley Todd. You know I. I'm a performer, of course. I think, uh, you know, I've even said that Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music is is one of my, um, you know, dream roles. Uh, of course, uh, I, there are things like Emil in South Pacific. A lot of the Richard Rogers music is very singable. Um, was designed for people to sing with their natural voices, not miked. Um, and I think, you know, there's repertoire from, say, the middle part of the 20th century that uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of us uh, non-miked singers um, would, would love to re- revisit. Yeah, they're good stories and they're, they're good tunes. And, you know, that's, of course, we, we love the idea of singing a good tune. And, I, of course, I, I think, I don't think there's any... Sno- I, I have to say immediately that having met Stephen Sondheim, he's less... Mm, I, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this because he said it to me. He said, "Oh, I, I don't enjoy performances of my works sung by opera singers as much as I do people who aren't opera singers." And to me, that's a reflection more on. No, I, I wanted to say, well, what is it that happens? And I think he's such a wordsmith, and he's such. I, I think he loves the flexibility of of the the non-operatic voice. Um, and I think perhaps we opera singers need to get a little bit more flexible. People have certain straight tones or whatever, which opera singers would find very difficult to incorporate into their 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 technique. Um, but I think we just have to chill out a bit uh, as opera singers. And perhaps, you know, in the 50s and 60s, you had people singing uh, Cole Porter and, uh, you know, nice... You know, Cesare Siepi, I have a whole disc of, of Cole Porter that he sang. And to me, it doesn't sound strange at all. It's just a wonderful singer singing wonderful music. And finally, you said you want to go on for another 30 years, and we, we very much hope you do. But if you did pack it in, would there be a return to the that kind of chemistry career that, that never happened? <laughs> no, I wouldn't be blowing up the shed at the bottom of the garden <laughs> by any means. Uh, no, I mean, I, I have some wonderful uh, leisure pursuits um, 
uh, I enjoy my astronomy and and uh, when I get a chance to read a bit of course that's that's great gardening and cooking are things that I do a bit of wine as well that's things I love to do and uh, don't get enough chance to drink wine that's because as a singer you, you just everything in moderation of course it's a monk it's a monk's life singers are the worst singer. singers and doctors I always found were the worst for uh, <laughs> a little drink uh, oh well yes I in the hands of a doctor, I suppose I would worry more. Um, I would worry about the shortening of a singing career. We have to be physically fit, and certainly young singers are aware of that part of it these days. Uh, physical fitness is, uh, you know, looking after yourself, sensible, sleeping. Um, you can't sing when you're tired. Um, I don't know how doctors ever learn to have only three or four hours sleep and do life, life-saving uh, operations or make life-saving decisions. That's, I can't believe we have a society that allows that. But an opera singer could not survive like that. So you're always seeing well-rested opera singers. Well, we very much look forward to seeing Death in Venice. It's going to be fantastic, I'm sure. Uh, Gerald Finley, thank you very much for joining us on OperaCast. Thank you so much. Death in Venice opens the 21st of November, and thank you to Gerald and the Royal Opera House for organising the interview. Now, sticking at Covent Garden, a very Covent Garden heavy episode. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, Ben and Emma and uh, and dear listeners, um, but the Royal Opera House have just launched this new film, um, which is all about kind of making the uh, Royal Opera and the Royal Ballet really sort of trendy um, and accessible to new people. Now, obviously, a lot of people don't like it. They think it's a bit... Um, uh, excessive it's trying it's trying a bit too hard but actually i think it's a really good um promotional video and they're, they're really trying to get it out as much as possible um i think it's very well put together i think it's a nice mix be- between sort of trying to be open and accessible but kind of keeping the quality there i think they've actually done a really good job one of the rare examples of opera doing this sort of thing <laughs> they, quite well they can't win can they because the minute they sell out all their tickets to fidelio to their friends they go oh stuck up elitist and then the minute they do it like this we go, ah, you bunch of work tossers <laughs> it's sort of like they can't win either which way yeah have you have you seen this emma what did, what did... yes no it, it did put quite a big smile on my face um one of the things i really liked was um the image of a woman in the ball gown on the bus and her friend who was taking her to the office saying but you you know there's no dress code because i must say i regularly go to the opera in jeans because it's like well this is what i'm comfortable in and but also when i see people that have dressed up it's also brilliant because like oh yeah you're kind of you're kind of you know bringing a bit of kind of pomp and circumstance to the evening and that's great too so that that inside don't don't you laugh a bit at the people wearing capes I do. You admit, admit it, you do, don't you? You find it funny. I think there's something I really like. I like going to, to Glyndebourne when I can get there. And this whole ethos of dressing up in, in, in black tie to respect the the level of com- commitment and talent of the performers. Now, I don't think when you go and see Opera Company X at Venue no. Y, she necessarily wear black tie. But I think there is yeah. something about... You want to feel comfortable in the experience, but you also want to appreciate that kind of level of... Um, I make a point to wearing a Huddersfield Giants rugby league top. <laughs> just, just, out, just out of principle. <laughs> that's, that's it. Hello. Yeah. Like, I, don't, yeah. I don't mind. You, you can kind of do. You can kind of do what you want. But there is something nice about that idea, as you say, kind of Emma, of, of kind of making it an occasion, even if you go to the theatre yeah. all, all the time, sort of appreciating kind of what's gone into what you're kind of appreciating on stage. And again, this is something a bit of a bee in my in my uh, bonnet is when people uh, leave. Um, before the applause, you know, the curtain goes down, they leave instantly. They don't kind of stay for the applause. Now, yeah, sometimes you've got a train or whatnot, okay. but a lot of the time it's just people trying to beat the 
very, very yeah. minimal rush to get down the stairs rush. at the end. All the characters that finish in Act 1, they tend not to stay oh, yeah. The singer, I mean, yeah. that's, yeah. The singers, they're long gone. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, kind of the very least you can do is kind of give a bit of applause at yeah. the end yeah. to say kind of, yeah. you know, thank you and, and well Love done. That. But those people that just sort of run away as quickly as possible, um, I yeah. think is a bit... Um, a bit untoward, um, but yeah, we'll. Uh, I think we've already tweeted out the film, but we'll put it out again. I think it's. I think it's a pretty good, a pretty good yeah. effort yeah, yeah. at doing good effort. Well tried. This sort of thing, which is always yeah. always very hard yeah. to do. <laughs> a roundup of opera on TV, radio, and film over the next month. Um, online, Opera Holland Park have released uh, a film called Into the Light, uh, which is about their project working with a former servicemen um, who are suffering from PTSD and mental health issues. Um, that's well worth a watch, the power of opera to transform lives. Um, on Opera Vision, uh, you can catch The Importance of Being Earnest um, by Gerald Barry. That's coming up as well as lots of other choices, but that's kind of my pick from Opera Vision this month. On radio, again, lots on Radio 3. Um, two I've picked out in particular, The Greek Passion by Opera North, a fantastic new production. Um, not an opera I, I think we'll see very often, but good to kind of give it a hearing. Uh, a very good cast, that's on Radio 3 now. And coming up soon, Don Quixote uh, by Massenet from Wexford. At the cinema, you can catch the Metropolitan Opera's production of Aknaten with Anthony Roth Costanzo. Um, now, I don't know if you've seen this, Ben. I know you're a bit of a, a fitness man yourself. You like your, yes, your kind yes. of hiking. Yes, I, I like a run. Yeah. And, and, and like a run. Yeah. I know if you've seen mountain. Anthony Roth Costanzo's extensive workout routine. He was told he was no. going to appear fully naked in this production. Excellent. So he went full on with his workout routine. He would, um, wouldn't you? He's got a PR working very hard for him at the moment, making sure <laughs> that everyone knows about it. Yeah. But he's been using this new... Elec uh, I was going to say electroshock. I don't know what it is technically, but it kind of oh, electrically stimulates, stimulates your muscle the muscles as you're doing or it. Or lazy exercise, as it's known. <laughs> more, more, more like. Right. I don't, right. I don't stand we out like this, right? If you want to get fit, run up that grassy hill until you sweat a lot, and that's the way you're going to do it. <laughs> I can that, see your parenting technique. Yeah, yeah. There's a grassy hill. Run up it till your lungs bleed. That, that will do it. But he's, he's into these electric he's shocks. In, he's into it? this yeah. thing, and I don't know if he's sponsored by them or whatnot, but it's... Yeah. It, it's uh, so he's been doing that to kind of appear nice and buff, buff for this production and the cinema screening. It's rod, to, it's rod for your own back though, isn't it? Because if you don't look amazing, people go, what, it's worked out? It's worked, it's worked out and that's the best we can get. That's uh, not... The, uh, unfor well, unfortunately, depends on what your your thoughts on this are. Um, uh, it's been... Uh, we understand that the, the nudity will not be featured in the live cinema screening. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, after, um, all that work, after all that electrons... Well, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll see a lot of the electrical upper body work. Well, good, 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 yeah. Um, but anything lower down will not be on the cinema screening. Um, so if that's why you booked your ticket for yeah. McNaughton, then I'm very sorry. Uh, but go for the wonderful production of Philip Glass yeah. Music instead. Yeah, 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 yeah. Emma, this month... Just, can I tell a story oh. about when I went to see Ak Norton at e &O? You can't you might, want not, you might not want to put this out. So he got completely naked, and then the chorus type people had to turn him over through 360 degrees and put his trousers on at the same time. But when they put his trousers on, his willy sort of like hung over the edge of his trousers and they couldn't get it in. And this chorus person had to scuttle over and just tuck it in slightly. <laughs> To me, it was my favourite bit of the production, actually. I, I, I laughed heartily. <laughs> Feel free to cut that out of the podcast. Feel free that not to go in. No, I think I'll keep that in. Excellent, good, great. Yeah. Um, Emma, please can you save us with yeah. your <laughs> hidden gem opera? What have you chosen? An opera that is very rarely heard that, deceive, uh, that deserves a wider <laughs> hearing. What have you chosen for this month? Um, so I have chosen... Uh, my German is shocking. I do apologise. Um, Der Weilschutz, or The Poacher. Um, it's by Lortzing. Um, it was written in 1842, so kind of bang in the middle of the 
19th century. Um, I've been mildly obsessed with this for about 10 years. Um, I think it was done at Buxton maybe about 15 years ago, possibly, um, although Google's not really been helping me out there. Um, basically, I first came across it, um, the Chorus of Opera North, back in 2011 did a phenomenal concert basically a germanic concert um it was around the time that opera north was starting the ring cycle um and they did lots of lovely stuff and then as their encore they did a duet with chorus from the poacher um which was just hilarious and brilliant and i was like what is this um and the head of music very kindly then told me what it was um and since then, I've probably had that specific duet on the brain, on and off, maybe about once a month, because um, it's very, very catchy. And it's um, that that specific piece of music is basically the chorusing, the alphabet in the background, whilst um, the soprano and the baritone sing a lovely, lovely song about marriage. Um, so the piece itself, uh, apparently... It's not done very often. I think it's probably got a bit more of a life in Germany, um, but it's beautiful, beautiful music, um, kind of very, very romantic, lots of brass going on. Um, you can hear, you know, the beginnings of going into Wagner. You can also hear kind of the tail end of Mozart. Um, and it's just gorgeous. It's a very silly plot. It's almost verging on operetta in terms of the plot silliness. Um, and it's got uh, shades of Figaro going on because it's also about the upper classes versus the lower classes. Um, and, yeah, it's just great. I love it very much. <laughs> a very good case. Good choice. Made yeah. for Der, der Valschitz. <laughs> yes. Let's listen to a little bit of the opera now. And so to end, it's time for the opera quiz. Uh, again, we're going to try a little bit of a different yeah, what you invented. format this month. Um, we are in the month of November. This is the November podcast, so we're going to celebrate composers with November birthdays. Um, ben and Emma, um, we've got five composers uh, taking in turns. I want you to tell me how old these composers would right. be this year if they were still alive. So here's a clue. They're all dead. They're all dead. Right. Um, okay. You can show your workings. Thanks. If you Thanks. so wish. Yeah, I do. Um, so the first composer, uh, so it's not the year they were born. It's how old they would be this year. Right. Uh, so I'm going to start with with Ben for number one, and then Emma can have a guess. Whoever's closest gets the point. Okay. 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 So Ben, born on the third of November in, in X year. In X year. Uh, how old uh, this year would Vincenzo Bellini have been? Bellini. What, what year is it? You make sure. Two hundred and fourteen. Two hundred and fourteen. That's what I reckon. Is that based on anything in particular, or? It's, it's based essentially, no, right, the Belcanto school we're writing sort of like the beginning of the 1800s, so it's, we're in 2019 now, so that would take us to 2019. Well, by the time we were writing opera, it must have been old enough, so I knocked off a few random years. But to be <laughs> honest, I think I've got a bit young. I bet it's a bit older than that. 214 says, when, Emma, can you give us how old this year would Vincenzo Bellini have been? So I vaguely remember some kind of anniversary and I would have said that his 200th anniversary so I'm going to say 
205 says Emma 214 says Ben and Vincenzo the- Bellini was born on the 3rd of November 1801 ah. which would have made him 218 oh. years old this year <laughs> Ben takes the first point congratulations well, thanks very much Cheers. four years out that's very impressive <laughs> one point to Ben uh, Emma your turn now a bit of a tricky one I'm, I'm very sorry <laughs> How old, um, born on the 16th of November in X year, would the composer Paul Hindemith have been this year? Okay, well, I've never heard of him, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> he, wrote a, he wrote a lovely viola sonata. Okay, <laughs> Hindemith, okay. Well, as I have, I have completely no idea, um, so I'm just going to say 150. 150. Ben. He's right, right, so he's right in between the wars. That's when the chunk of it. I reckon 150 is not a million miles off. Um, so it's in 2019, he'd be 100. I'm going to go 120. 120, says Ben. Born 16th of November, Paul Hindemith this year would have been 100. And 24 years oh, old. No. Oh, four years out again. <laughs> oh, four years out last time. Very, very <laughs> impressive. Um, a composer of a number of, of operas. Um, I'm not sure what the most famous uh, one has, has, has been. <laughs> when you say famous. Famous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Composer of a number of operas. Um, operas the Long yeah. Christmas Dinner, um, perhaps one of his, his, his better known ones. The most depressing Christmas opera you could ever, um, you could ever <laughs> imagine. Um, Emma, born 22nd of November in year X. How old, please, would Lord Benjamin Britten have been this month? So, yeah, how old he would be this month? Yeah. So I know, I know exactly this because I know the year he was born. Um, so he would have would be a hundred and six. Do you know? I'm going to go for a hundred and six. <laughs> <laughs> Just at the point when Emma said she knew the year they were born, that really, I really bought into an answer. <laughs> it is frowned upon to say the same year, but I'll allow it. Lord Benjamin Britten this year would have been 106 years yeah. old. Yeah, well done. That, that, morally, that's your victory, Emma. So going to Ben once more. Ben, born the 29th of November. How old this year would Gaetano Donizetti have been? 225. Two, two, five. Emma, any increase, decrease for Donizetti? Um, I'm really tempted just to say four years either side of Ben's answer. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're aware that you're in a different room and um, have probably got a phone next to you. <laughs> I'm being very... I'm well, that, that's honest. very okay. good of you. Um, I'm going to say 210. Born the 29th of November. Ben, you're good at being four years out. My four years out? This time you are three years oh. away. Donizetti would have been 222 this year. I knew we were older than Bellina. <laughs> Which means that Ben is the winner of our well composer. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, well done to both of you. Thank you for being such good sports as ever. Um, do join us, listeners, next month for our Christmas special. We've got an exclusive interview with Sarah Hopwood from Glyndebourne. Um, we'll be covering all the latest opera news uh, and making sure you have the most wonderful operatic Christmas you could wish for. Thank you, Ben, for joining us this November. Been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Emma. Thank you. Thank you for doing my thank yous for me. Not at all, not at all. Don't mention it. Thank you. <laughs> thank you to Chapel <laughs> FM. Thank you to everyone. Everyone. And uh, we will see you next month. Goodbye.
or so. He was 16 when he wrote it, but <laughs> it's his GCSE composition. But as they <laughs> as they go, it's but, it, a but it wasn't a patch on my GCSE composition, <laughs> no, no, no. which essentially was the snowman bastardized. <laughs> somebody, in my, somebody in my GCSE music group wrote this piece of music that went ba dum bum ba da dun da dun da da and handed it in. I did this piece. Was, I was really proud, and the the instrumental section went da 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 da. And I was like, this is great. And then you know, six months later, you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've heard that before, actually. Yeah. Uh, right, good. Let's move on. 